If you're like most people, you strive to eat healthy as much as you can, but it gets really difficult when life gets in the way. We get busy, we're running around doing lots of things, it's hard. Being able to eat healthy on the go is super important more than ever now, and that's why I'm here to tell you about G2G Protein Bars. They're the best protein bar for eating healthy on the go. It's made with all natural ingredients, they're fresh, it tastes like homemade, but it's even better. G2G Bars have 18 grams of protein and are gluten-free. With eight different flavors, there's so many different things that you can enjoy about the great tastes of G2G bars and what they have to offer. They're fresh, healthy, and delicious. Make sure to get yours at g2gbar.ca or at your local retailer in Canada or the US. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Sit back and enjoy stories and insight from sports icons from all over. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's guest, a Winnipegger at heart, despite him being in the province of Alberta. He is a Vanier Cup champion, a Grey Cup champion with the Edmonton Eskimos in 2015. Won here in Winnipeg, his hometown. Please welcome Eddie Steele. Eddie, brother, it's great to have you on, man. Thanks for being on. I appreciate the opportunity. It's good to be here chatting with you today. The CFL has just been a whirlwind this year with all the different changes of power, the shortened season, but nonetheless, we are grateful that CFL football is happening. And based on some preseason predictions from pundits around the league versus now, some things have been drastically different and others have been the same. First with the same, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. They've been very successful this year. Haven't missed a beat since 2019, it looks like, and they are continuing to be successful on the field. What are some of the major things that you've seen from Winnipeg that has led to their success in 2021? Well, the biggest thing I would say is, and I've noticed it even being a player because I retired after the 2018 season. So uh, I've played against that organization many times over the years. And Ever since Mike O'Shea has been there, one of the biggest things that they've done is drastically changed their offensive line. And their offensive line literally is the heart and soul of that team. Some might say it's Andrew Harris, but Andrew Harris isn't going to have the success he's had if it wasn't for the offensive line. And the game of football is won and lost in the trenches. And their offensive line, since Mike O'Shea has taken over, has been the best offensive line in the league uh, year after year. Normally, most offensive linemen, they just want to block you and get in your way. This offensive line, they want to finish you. They want to put you down to the turf, and they want to really wear out and wear down your will. So that's one of the biggest reasons that they're so successful. Uh, I talk a lot about, especially with the, the fire that I've caused out here in Edmonton the past week, about culture and organizational culture. And Mike uh, O'Shea has done a fantastic job of, shaping that team uh, after his identity and how he was as a player. He was a, an amazing player, all-star player, but he wasn't the flashiest type of guy. He was kind of a, a gritty, a grinded-out, blue-collar type of a player, and that's exactly how this Winnipeg club is shaped, and they play that way. Winnipeg, when Mike O'Shea first arrived, was definitely in a lot of disarray after the departure of Joe Mack, who was the GM. Previously, Kyle Walters had stepped in. Mike O'Shea arrived in Winnipeg on the scene in 2014. Now, I remember watching as a fan and thinking, well, 
they looked a little okay in the beginning and they still struggled. But at the end of the day, it seemed that things were getting a bit better. And after the Swaggerville defense had dissolved, Winnipeg fans were left wondering if they were ever going to find success. And I remember it was in 2015, things looked to be a bit on the rocks. And the next year, it almost seemed like, well, this, this ship's got to turn around. Otherwise, we're going to press the reset button again. And it, if it wasn't for Matt Nichols coming in, in Edmonton, actually, coincidentally, that game that Winnipeg had won their first time at Commonwealth since Milt Steagle's miracle 100-yard touchdown catch, that's when the gears started to click. And ever since then, it's only been up for Winnipeg. Mike O'Shea, Kyle Walters, and Wade Miller, a deadly trio, all Canadian, have that as well, or be that as well. They're all Canadian. And Edmonton, you were there at the height of their success in 2015. They won the Great Cup. Mike Riley was outstanding. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was he was the CFL MOP that year, correct? In 2015? Uh, no, I, he was MOP in 16. I, I forget who it was in 15. And you guys dominated against uh, dominated the Ottawa Red Blacks. You were able to be a Grey Cup champion on home soil in Winnipeg. And it looked like Edmonton had finally received the fruits of their labor after grinding for years and years and years and getting close. Are there a few similarities that you saw during your time there as a player, as you've seen it with some of the successful teams with great cup champions since Edmonton won in 2015, talking about O-line, talking about culture, Chris Jones was there at the helm and he definitely was, was quite the, quite the character that really, really led that team. Yeah. You know what? Going back to Winnipeg, I, I see a lot of similarities. One of the biggest similarities I see is Willie Jefferson. You know, Willie was a young pup coming into the league at that point in time. His first year was in 2014, and I thought, who's this lanky guy? He can rush the passer, but he doesn't want to stop that run, and uh, he's really developed. I've played with Willie in Edmonton, with him in Saskatchewan, uh, and we played a lot of years together, and it's amazing to see just the development and the maturity uh, on and off of the field and just how he carries himself. So that's a big factor. Whenever you have an X factor like that of a player, He's uh, essentially unstoppable because if he's not going to get to the quarterback and get that pressure, well, being 6-7 is nice to get your hands up in the passing lane and bat those balls down. Or even if you don't uh, have a, a play that you're actually involved in, just his presence around quarterbacks and they hear footsteps and maybe they get rid of the ball faster than they like. So that's one constant is a guy like Willie and that type of talent. But defense, we all have heard the – the cliche defense wins championships and that's the reality. I've been a part of it and I've seen it with a lot of organizations over the years. Uh, Our offense in 2015, when we won, it was good and it was pretty loaded, but it's not the reason we were winning. It wasn't because we were outscoring our opponents, you know, 45 to 10. It was our defense that really carried us that year. I think statistically we're one of the best defenses in CFL history. And you look at the Bombers Club right now, they have a lights-out defense. Their offense, they're not overly flashy. They're going to pound the ball, and they're going to, you know, take their shots when they're given to them, but they're not going to – they're not an aerial attack type of offense where it's a lot of flash. Uh, But it begins and ends with defense, and then you score a few points, and the defense does their thing. And I I think it's very similar uh, between Edmonton when we won it and Winnipeg the past couple of years in 2019 and this year. Richie Hall has been the defensive coordinator with Winnipeg for a few years now and was under a lot of fire during those first few years that they were making the playoffs 
getting close to the West final and they weren't able to quite finish the job. And then once they won the great cup and it all came together in 2019, the critics became silent. And Richie Hall, I think is a, a man that didn't get as much credit as he deserved from the beginning. And it only started to pour in once they were successful as great cup champions. Can you talk a bit about Richie Hall's role with that defense in Winnipeg? Yeah, he, you're right. He doesn't get the credit that he is due to him. Um, I don't know him personally, but I know a lot of people who know him personally, not even just football players, but family friends who knew him, or I, I guess he resides in Regina in the off season. So a lot of people who know him and uh, they just always, the, it's consistent that he's just a good guy, just a caring guy. He's not an overly emotional type of guy. He's fairly even keeled and just a great leader, you know, just a humble man. That's the, the one consistent thing I always hear about Richie Hall. And, you know, the reality is you look at his defenses over the years. Sure, he's caught in some flack about giving up a lot of yards a couple of years back. Uh, but it's a bend but don't break style of defense. So they'll let you move the ball in between, you know, the 20-yard lines each way. But once you get into that red zone, they really clamp down. I and mean, it's tough to score points against them. And I've witnessed that firsthand with some of the teams I've been a part of. So that's kind of his MO, you know, it's a different style than some other coordinators like a Chris Jones where he's really aggressive, but uh, it works and it's clearly worked because they have the best defense in the league right now. Speaking of Chris Jones, he's returns to the CFL after a stint in the NFL and he was coaching high school, I believe down South in the U S and came to, to the Toronto Argonauts and almost seemingly came to the rescue because the Argos were a bit inconsistent on defense and finally really started to pick it up and they throttled Ottawa defensively in his first game at the helm, calling the plays and being in charge. They got two pick sixes and a block punt touchdown. Something I don't think has ever happened uh, that I've ever seen in a long, long time from an Argos team. I think it hasn't happened in over 15 years. They were saying on TSN, can you talk a bit about Chris Jones's impact on the teams that he's a part of? Cause you know him quite well from having played on his defense and you can also see from afar now as an analyst and a guy that has a lot of insight with the, with the Canadian Football League that he definitely has a very felt presence whenever he's on the field. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, a felt presence. You're right. Uh, he's got a very unique style of defense, aggressive defense, and uh, just his whole coaching style and his personal demeanor, it's, it's pretty no-nonsense. Uh, to this day, I say he's one of the best coaches that I've ever had in my life. He's... Um, He's not, not for everybody. You know, he, he can rub some people the wrong way, uh, be it fans and media and players, but uh, the proof is in the pudding. And if you buy into his system, uh, you're going to have success. You're going to have some personal success and you're going to have team success because he's a proven winner. He's won four great cups with different clubs all around the CFL. He's turned organizations around. You know, he, he did it with Saskatchewan. He took a team that I think was four and 14. Didn't have a ton of success his first year, but the second year when I arrived there, we went, we crossed over and we made it to the East final. Uh, our, my last year there, we made it to the playoffs again, lost to Winnipeg in the semis. Uh, Edmonton, it's already proven what he did there. I mean, in 2013, we were, uh, again, we we're four and 14 and he came in, we went to, um, I believe it was 12 and six in 14. And then in 2015, we were 14 and four and we went on a 10 game win streak to end the season. So he obviously his track record is proven. And I think that's what makes it easier for people to buy into his style because 
he is a proven winner. He's not just some Joe Blow off the street, you know, trying to trying to turn a defense around. And uh, like I said, it's a unique style of defense. Um, not not a very common type of a defense for the CFL. Uh, a lot of man coverage and uh, really aggressive up front. A lot of blitzing, but uh, it, the proof is in the pudding. And I I'm a big Chris Jones guy because I've won with him, and I just I believe in his system because it's proven. That's a topic I've heard be brought up by a lot of football players through my time playing and afterwards people talking about unique defenses and saying how it can be controversial at times for some locker rooms and some players don't agree with it. And you sometimes see it at the university level from having interacted with several players who have played for the Bisons. I remember them telling me, Oh, like coach Pierre's defense is, is tough to learn. And he's, he's a good teacher. He's very fair and he does not discriminate against any players or play favorites, but his defense is something that takes a lot of time to study and learn. But once you get it and you buy into that system, you can see the success on the field. It's a plug and play, no matter who's in there. The, when the assignments are completed, the results are shown and you had the opportunity to be a part of a Vanya cup championship with the Bisons. So talk a little bit about coach Pierre in terms of his defensive style and how Maybe if something seems unique or odd at first, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not bad or that, that it's not good because you've obviously had success at the university and the professional level with good defenses. Yeah. Yeah. You, again, you nailed it. Coach Pierre, it's uh, he's fair, but he has no nonsense, you know, and uh, I, I was actually just doing some reminiscing about my days with the Bisons the other day. And yeah, we had some really good talent, but uh, he has a good defensive scheme. And uh, it's, it is quite compl- complicated, especially in the secondary. You know, me being a D lineman, it's not as difficult because there's only so much you can do. But I know based off my experience with some teammates and whatnot, uh, he likes to uh, disguise a lot of things and his zones can be somewhat challenging to figure out and depending on what the offense is running. So you really do got to be on your P's and Q's, especially for a university ball. Like it's pretty advanced. Uh, so I'll say that it's it's a unique defense, and if you once you get it figured out in terms of a player, uh, which requires you to do your studying, you can't just show up and play. Like you really got to study the playbook. Yeah, you're going to be put in a position to have some good success, uh, which obviously we did. You know, winning the Vanier Cup in '07. So, yeah, uh, Coach Pierre, he's uh, he he didn't like me too much at first. Uh, I'll say that honestly, he didn't like me. I was this. Hot shot coming out of Kelvin, wasn't doing the right things uh, in terms of working out, in terms of schoolwork. I'd skip study hall. I, w- I just wasn't doing the right things. But it finally clicked for me uh, after a couple of years, and uh, we really developed a really good relationship. I, I like to believe I became one of his favorites. Well, anytime that you hoist a Vanya Cup alongside any coaching staff, there's definitely going to be a lot of memories that will last for a lifetime. And uh, even when so one of the very first episodes I ever had on uh, coach Pierre was a guest and, and to this day, it's still the most listens to episode in terms of audio. And he talked about winning the Vanya cup and said the amount of his words, unfettered joy that he felt the final whistle and the relief because of how hard it is to win football games in the Canada West in university. And especially against any team in the Vanya cup, because it's so it's so even across the board that anybody can beat anybody. Once you get to the playoffs, talking about reminiscing on the Vanya cup victory, it's almost been 15 years will be next season. What are some of your favorite memories when you think back to your time with the Bisons playing 
at the old university stadium, using the gritty grotto to work out. You guys didn't have the Taj Mahal to play in, but you had the hardware to back it up. So talk a little bit about your time with the University of Manitoba. Uh, first and foremost, the relationships. You know, you don't you don't miss the football as much. It's the relationships, the guys, the fun that we would have, the rock, you know, sitting sitting on the rock and you know, so many guys would just skip classes and we'd all meet at the rock at university center and we wouldn't do anything. We'd just sit around and talk like, you know, but those, those are the memories that stand out to you. Uh, you're right. The gritty grotto, man, that place was, the place was always filthy. It was always dusty, but it, it was blue collar. You show up, you put your work in and the results take care of themselves playing on our, um, our practice field where now the stadium is the, the big shiny new toy. I guess it's not so new anymore, but the big shiny stadium, it was a huge field that was always covered in goose poop. And we would always have to practice in it. And there'd be practices where we'd have a bad practice and coach would just, Doby would call the practice early and we'd have to do conditioning and we'd have to do bear crawls in the poop and just, all types of disgusting stuff, but that, that shapes your character and that, that really, it shapes your work ethic. And that's why we had the culture that we had for those few years where we were really successful because in 2006, I actually redshirted that year, but again, we had an undefeated season that year. We got upset by the university of Saskatchewan in the playoffs, but we could have easily, easily had back-to-back Vanier cups because we dominated Canada for two years. Uh, from 06 and 07. The 06 team considered one of the the biggest upsets that's ever happened in recent memory for the Bisons, especially to be undefeated and to lose at home in the Hardy Cup, I think it was. It's it, it gut-wrenching for sure. And I remember talking about this actually with Coach Pierre. I was asking him about the, the rivalries across the Canada West and what makes them so interesting and so unique. And he was like, well, it's hard to win football games. And if you look at Saskatchewan and Manitoba versus each other all time is usually it's, it's pretty even no team has way more wins than the other and you know different size schools but it's a rivalry that creates for a really tough football and thinking about you're mentioning your character being shaped by being at a, a haphazard practice field you're not in the big shiny stadium and all these things but it shows in the results. I remember coach Toby actually telling me a story when we were doing an interview he was talking about, he had some recruits from Edmonton and I think it was in 06 or 07. They came out on a visit in the winter and they couldn't even go in the locker room because there's the, the shed in the back there. <laughs> he was like, Oh yeah, that that's where our locker room is. And he was, he was showing them the gritty grotto and the guys were just excited. And he was so shocked, but they ended up playing a key role in the Vanya cup win. And, and you see, the teams that have the big shiny toys and the fancy, all the frills and all the trimmings, that's not what creates character. And that's not what makes football teams, you know, more resilient when the time comes with your back against the wall. Right. Yeah. I, I like how you said the word resilient because you're right. And what really stands out to me when you're talking about that, the, the shiny stadiums, all the, the money, the expensive uh, gym equipment, a lot of the programs in the OUA and I'm not one to just throw shade but the OUA notoriously has nice jerseys nice fields good equipment good locker rooms and I've been in a few of them and they are nice for sure for sure for CIS or uh, yeah CIS or U Sport now Mm -hmm. but um, you know I, I find 
the OUA generally has the softer teams too. When we're talking about physicality and we're talking about, you know, that resilience, it's kind of more of a finesse style football. Whereas, you know, out in the Canada West, it's not a bunch of nice stadiums. Yes. The Bisons are blessed now to be playing where they're playing, but you know, you still have some, some sloppier stadiums and uh, it's just a different mentality when they approach their football. It's uh, more smash mouth, a lot more physical. And uh, I, I personally, I'm biased, of course, but I think the Canada West is the best conference uh, overall, uh, just from top to bottom in terms of uh, the level of play with the teams. In the OUA, you have one or two really good teams that always dominate. Uh, in, uh, in the Q, you always have Laval. You know, Montreal has stepped it up as of late, but it's always been Laval, and that's it. You know, it's a lot of – it's very high, high top-level talent, but then it's all bottom feeders after the top one or two teams where the Canada West, from top to bottom, anybody can win on any given day, and it's, uh, it's a different brand of football, no doubt about it. Even this year with a bit of a reset, having not played in 2020 – there's been a lot more evenly matched games, I feel. You look in the OUA, there actually have been some more evenly matched games than previously because usually you'd see three or four teams all have one or zero wins. There's like four wins between four teams at the bottom and then Western and throwing another team are going to be the top two that for sure will go to the Yates Cup. But yeah, you're right, the Canada West, it's always evenly matched. I mean, the other divisions have definitely had their, their shakeup this year, but you look at the Canada West, the Bisons beat Regina. Regina beat Calgary. Calgary beat Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan beat UBC. Like now all we need is UBC yep. uh, to beat Manitoba. And then there you go. Now everybody's beat everybody in some circle. And that's what I find interesting. Even just forget university for a second. You talk about junior. I remember when I was in the Winnipeg Rifles, you look at, sure, some years they're not great. Some years they're better. And some other teams in the prairies can be a little weaker and other times they can be stronger. But the thing that I find interesting is that Coach Wilson, when I was in the Rifles, I love the quote he used. He said, there's no sisters of the poor. There's no teams that are really terrible. Everybody mm. can beat anybody and can compete on any given day, especially especially at university and especially in, in junior. That prairie mindset of football, I think, is just what makes Canadian football, like, I think that's what defines its brand, you know? Like, Ontario, obviously, yes, they'll mathematically have most number of high-talent high players, same with Quebec. But you look across the prairies, there's no – they ain't no slouches that come out of the conference out of no. both levels. They have produced some of the best talent that we've seen in the CFL in recent years, obviously outside of some of the guys from Ontario, but you've seen it yourself playing in Edmonton and playing in Saskatchewan, that there's been a lot of really good Canadians that come out of the pipeline in the Canada West. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the Canada West does notoriously get slept on. Statistically, of course, you're just by population and the, the law of numbers and averages. You're going to get some some different types of athletes that come out of the different conferences. Uh, but I think overall, pound for pound for the Canada West, what they produce, I think they do produce some of the best football players, uh, at least to go into uh, the next ranks, be it pro, CFL, NFL. I think the best football players do come out of Canada West, in my opinion. Now, I want to ask you, talking about Canadian players, because you played with a bunch in university that went on to the CFL as well, and obviously you were able to play against a lot of them at the professional level. During your CFL career, who would you say, doesn't have to be in any particular order, five best Canadian players in the CFL when you were in the league? Mm. 
Good question. Good question. Brandon Labatt, for sure. Offensive lineman for Saskatchewan. Um, Mike Miller, special teamer with Winnipeg. Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. Getting me thinking. Ted Laurent, defensive lineman, Hamilton. Um, I'm trying to think some offensive guys as well. Oh, Harris, that's an obvious. Um, I can think of another Rob? running back for sure. I think, I mean, I was going to say, John, would John Cornish have played in the league when you were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cornish, yeah, yeah, Cornish for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Tough to, tough to forget about Cornish. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that guy, he's, he gave us some fits in Edmonton. He must have been just one of the, the deadliest running backs you guys played against because he's amazing as a Canadian and as a player overall. Just forget the nationality status, but especially during those times in Calgary. Because I remember when I watched, I was like towards the end of a high school and I was like, there's no way that anyone be, will be able to beat Calgary in the playoffs, right? Like they just automatically make the great cup, right? Isn't that, isn't that how it works? I remember that 2014 West final. I was like, I feel so bad for Edmonton because they're a great team. But him and Mitchell, deadly combo. Couldn't stop him. Yeah, he he broke us that season. Yeah, Cornish for sure. And, you know, forget status, Canadian-American. He was just a flat-out football player. But, again, Calgary, a reason why they had so much success with Cornish and why Boliva has success. Great players, not taking anything away from them, but good offensive lines in front of them. Like, really good offensive lines. And that's where the game truly is won and lost. Is You have a good offensive line generally you're going to have some good team success. And you even look at Calgary this year. Um, yeah, Bo Levi has been hurt and hasn't been playing up to the usual standard that we're used to, that we're accustomed to seeing. But their offensive line, it hasn't been as good. And they're, it's, all, it's all one part um, working together. You know, it's, there's a correlation. Uh, if the O-line's not playing and they're not having the same team success that we're accustomed to watching. The West, besides Winnipeg dominating like crazy, has been a very interesting shuffle as of late because I know Calgary started poorly and everyone was kind of starting to write them off. But I was thinking I wouldn't want to see Calgary cross over if they get a chance to. But now it looks like they are, they're going to do a little more than that. So besides from Winnipeg being in first place, how would you rank the teams in the West? Because my, and obviously minus Edmonton, BC have been good but then they've been inconsistent at times and Saskatchewan looked great. But then asides from the games against the Eastern teams, they've looked like they've struggled a bit. Would you put Calgary as the number one team in the West besides Winnipeg? Or how would you rank those three between Calgary, BC and Saskatchewan? Yeah, I would go uh, Calgary, then BC, then Saskatchewan. I mean, the reality is whenever you have a team that's coached by Dave Dickinson and an organization that's led by John Huffnagel, you're going to have some sort of success. It's very, it's an anomaly to see the start that they had, but that's behind them. And we all know that the best teams that win the Grey Cup always start peaking from midway to the end of the season. So, yeah, as much as you want to have a consistent start and play well throughout the season, uh, it's not all about the start. It's all about the finish in the CFL. And if Calgary can get hot here, you know, watch out. Even Winnipeg, watch out because Calgary, is a team that's been there, done that, much like Winnipeg, for sure. But I think 
Calgary is probably the best team right now that can compete with them. Uh, BC, up and down, right? But when, again, whenever you have a team that's led by Mike Riley, yeah, chances are you're going to be in the game because he's just uh, a flat-out baller, a flat-out leader, uh, a warrior, one of the best quarterbacks I've ever been around in my life for many different reasons. In Saskatchewan, you know, I'm, I still haven't been sold on Cody Fajardo, in all, all honesty. In my career, I've played him for a few years before he was a, a breakout star in 2019. I never expected him to be what he was in 2019. He was always a, a third-string short yardage guy. He had a lot of success in 2019, uh, but teams weren't really familiar with him as a quarterback. And I think now that teams have that film on him, uh, things have changed a little bit this year, and he's not having that same level of success. He's not getting away with some of the moves that he, he was doing in 2019. Teams have picked up on some of his tendencies, and I think that is a major reason why he's kind of – he's regressed. There's no denying he's regressed this season from what he was in 2019. So, yeah, I, I need to see more from him because I, I was shocked that he had that level of success in 2019, and I still wasn't completely sold on it, and I am yet to be sold on it. Cody Fajardo, definitely an interesting take because in 2019, I was like, oh, well, I was just thinking – this is what was hiding on the bench in Toronto for all these years. And now he's got his time to shine. But this year I was starting to think, oh, well, maybe it's because injury, you never know. And, and obviously like, so, I mean, not sophomore slump because he's not a rookie or wasn't a rookie last year, but I, I can't really argue with you there because someone can do something one year and be great, but if they can't repeat it, then are they really as good as that one season? Exactly. It's, and tough. I agree. And once that film is out, because the film doesn't lie, right? And that's once teams are able to study and prepare uh, properly for that opponent, it makes things a lot more difficult. And I think we're seeing the effects of that this season with Fajardo's play. Now, if you were in the shoes of, I think it's Jeremy O'Day is the, is the GM of Saskatchewan right now. If Fajardo doesn't pan out, what's the next move you make? Because I'm not sure if Isaac Harker is QB1 materials of yet. Would you go into the, the market to trade for a quarterback? Or what would you do if you were Saskatchewan's GM? And if Fajardo wouldn't, uh, doesn't end up panning out? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a good question. Because the CFL, it's such a transient league and things change. There's so much fluidity, right? And Things change from week to week, year to year, especially with these one-year contracts guys are signing. Um, I don't know if they're ready to, you know, wipe the page clean of Fajardo just yet. Uh, just, you know, quite frankly, because I don't know what's out there. Now, I did just hear today that uh, Nick Arbuckle is a uh, trade bait right now, and some teams are might be calling for Nick Arbuckle out of Toronto. So, who knows? Who really knows? I, I just, it, it's all a matter of what's out there, right? You don't want to just let go of a guy if you don't have a, a succession plan in place because then you're really hooped as an organization. So yeah, there's a lot of factors uh, that need to be determined before you make that move. Toronto has had an interesting quarterback situation because McLeod Bethel Thompson, to me, is the CFL version of Ryan Fitzpatrick. Plays great when adversity is in his face and he's from behind and no one expects anything of him. But the second he's given the keys to the car, then he crashes it. I don't know what it is if he, if he hasn't been able to find as much consistency 
as maybe some other quarterbacks. And Nick Arbuckle has definitely been a good bridge the gap kind of guy, but I'm not sure if he's a, a franchise signal caller just yet. So with that situation in Toronto, you mentioned Arbuckle being trade bait. Is it too soon for them to move on from him and hand the keys to McLeod Bethel Thompson? Or how do you assess what's going on with the quarterback controversy in Toronto? Yeah, it, it's such a man. You're right. He is the Ryan Fitzpatrick because he does well and has some great flashes. But then when he he's named that full time starter, then it just it goes south. So I, I probably would be willing to roll with McLeod Bethel Thompson uh, just because he has proven himself. I mean, our our buckles proven himself, but in limited, limited um, opportunities. Uh, but I think McLeod gives you a better uh, option at the quarterback position uh, right now, right? If you can hold on to both of them, that's the best thing that you can do, right? And who cares about feelings? You play whoever is rolling hot because you look at Hamilton. Uh, they got Dane Evans and Mazzoli. And you can thank their lucky stars last year that they had a, a good backup quarterback because when Mazzoli went down, Evans came in and he did his thing. Uh, had they have had, you know, the traditional backup who's not very uh, well experienced in the CFL game or what have you, they probably wouldn't have made it to the Grey Cup uh, in 2019. So it, it always serves you best to have two good quarterbacks on the roster, but uh, it's that's a lot of egos and contracts that you need to juggle in order to do so. It's definitely very tough. And even with what's going on at Edmonton right now, there was a picture I saw circulating on Twitter of Brock Sunderland with Trevor Harris during walkthrough and Trevor Harris isn't even dressed for the game tomorrow, which I just find is crazy. He's like one of the highest paid quarterbacks in the league and is the highest paid player on your team. And he's a healthy scratch for a game against the best team in the CFL at home where they haven't even won yet this season. I'm just so baffled. What there's no such thing as tanking in, football or is there like what why would they make that decision it honestly it makes no sense i don't get it i've never seen anything like this in pro football where you said it you have your starting quarterback highest paid player on the team normally okay if you want to roll with the backup because you feel like your number one guy is not getting it done then you'll start the backup but you'll have the number one guy dressing as the number two but here he's not even dressing like they're going with two inexperienced guys over trevor harris it just makes no sense to me. And uh, it honestly just goes back to some of the things that I said that, you know, caused a storm last week in the media in terms of just uh, the organization is just so dysfunctional. Like it's hard to wrap your head around the the moves and some of the decisions that they've made this year. Uh, so I, I don't, I can't explain it better than that because it, it makes no sense to me why they're doing what they're doing. I I feel for Edmonton fans, it's definitely been a whirlwind of a year, but at the end of the day, like you said, things are transient in the CFL. So I honestly believe this too shall pass. I remember for Winnipeg fans thinking for the longest time during the Joe Mack era that this will never end and we're going to be cursed forever, but it eventually did end. Maybe it took the second longest Grey Cup drought in CFL history, but it eventually ended. So I think for Edmonton, better days are on the horizon, maybe not this week or but this year or maybe not even next, but maybe the year after. And we'll see where Edmonton can finally take it after what's definitely been a disappointing season in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see. And you're right. I mean, the end, it has to end somewhere. Um, 
I've said it ends at the GM. Uh, so I, I don't think that the organizational turn anything around until they make a change uh, somewhere in management, because uh, I've said it many times over the past week, the GM is the captain of the ship and uh, he's going to steer it wherever or wherever they go. He's going to be the one steering it and leading them in that direction. And uh, it's pretty clear as day to me, there's some major dysfunction there. So Eddie, we're getting towards the end of our time on today's episode. So I want to ask you some a few quick rapid fire questions to have some more fun before we part for today. Let's do it. Who is the best offensive lineman that you played against in your career? Uh, I have two of them. Uh, Brendan Labatt is one of them. The second is Dimitri Sumpus played for Calgary when I, he got out of the league after 2013, but he was uh, a dog when I was a young puppy coming in the CFL. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he was a the O-line coach for the University of Calgary afterwards. I remember guys talking about him when I was there and saying, oh, Coach Sumpus, he was uh, he's a tough man. That's for yeah, sure. exactly. Tough to say the least, yeah. <laughs> Favorite quarterback that you played against that was not on your team? So who, who did you really like uh, playing against during your time? Like whether he was getting sacks or putting pressure – or it was just a fun competitive battle because they were so good. Who is, who is that guy? Uh, again, two of them, uh, Ricky Ray and Anthony Calvillo, a couple legends, a couple guys that uh, weren't very mobile. So they stood in the pocket and gave you as a defensive lineman, some opportunities to hit them. Who is the best head coach in the CFL this century? Ooh, well, that's a good one. Uh, I would probably say, uh, Tressman, Mark Tressman. Tressman. Yeah. That's if I was to put two guys, I put Tressman and Hoffnagel, but I mean, Tressman, you can't deny how successful he made the Alouette or the successful role he played during yeah. the Alouette's golden generation. It wasn't just obviously all him, but he was definitely a, a big part of that for sure. Yeah. Who is the funniest guy? that you were teammates with during your career? Mm. Probably Odell, Odell Willis. Yeah, he's a character. He, he's, he's outrageous. No filter and he, he's different. Me and him, we're tight to this day. We like to go golfing and whatnot, but he's, he's a character. It's crazy to think, I remember watching the Swaggerville defense and him being the mayor of Swaggerville and then he left to Edmonton. And I was very sad because obviously you want an amazing player like that on your team. Then all became well when Willie Jefferson came to town and helped Winnipeg win a great cup. But there's still no denying Odell Willis's greatness because I remember when he got his 100th sack, he said, you don't have to like me, but you have to respect me because yep. he's done it like not many men have done. No, he's one of 12 who hit 100 sacks in the CFL. So then... That leads to my next question. Who would you say are three of the greatest defensive linemen in CFL history? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, probably Doug Brown, for sure. He was one of my idols growing up. Um, Joe Monford, he was another guy growing up, watching him in Hamilton. And uh, I'll say Armando Sewell. Yeah, he was. he's a beast. I've never seen someone as strong, as powerful as him, the way he could just move offensive line. I've never seen it before. 
Who was the toughest player that you ever played with or against in your entire football career? Like they were just like, you were scared when you went up against them or if you were playing alongside them, they were just tough as nails 24 seven. Mondo, Almondo Sewell. Yeah. He's a dog. They don't, he's, no, he's not a dog. That's, that's giving him, uh, that's a disservice to him. He's a silverback gorilla. Easily. He has to be one of the, the best D linemen that the CFL has seen this decade and the decade before that. Cause he's, he's racked up the mileage, but he's still very dominant. I think he's like a, almost like a John Bowman. When I think of players who have played the D line position to be very old. I mean, by the standards of the CFL and still be very yeah. dominant during their, during the end of their career. Absolutely. I mean, the guy from a defensive tackle position to get the sacks and the stats he does and be a, a perennial all-star, it's uh, it, you don't see that often. The final question I have for you is this. Who is the best coach that you ever had in your universe, or sorry, not university career, in your professional career, who's the best coach that you had and who is the best coach that you played against? Mm, professional career. Because, yeah, university, if we want to add it all into one question, Mike Watson, hands down, best coach I've ever had. Professional, uh, Chris Jones, best coach I've ever had. And played against, I, I would probably say Tressman. Yeah, Chris Jones and Chris Tressman. Well, Eddie, with that, I want to thank you for having been on today's episode. It was a great pleasure to talk CFL ball with you. I really enjoyed being able to dive into all the great stories and the places that you've been in your football career. And I want to absolutely acknowledge you for the great work that you've done, shedding light upon situations in the CFL that maybe a lot of people wouldn't have the courage to, to talk about because like Milt said on the broadcast after the decision was made to let you go. Now, I don't want, I don't want to get anyone fired, but it definitely starts with the people at the top. And I mean, you had the courage to say it first and whether it costs you a position working or not, it doesn't matter. And I think that people who speak the truth over staying silent and towing the line definitely need to be acknowledged for their, for their courage. So I definitely want to acknowledge you for that. And obviously congratulate you on the great career that you had in the CFL and the impact you continue to make on and off the field with your presence, your knowledge, and your insight. It's just fantastic. So I'm very grateful that you're able to be on today's episode. And I'm very thankful for the kind words. I really appreciate that. And this was awesome. It was fun chatting with you and keep doing your thing. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode with 2015 Grey Cup champion and 2007 Vanya Cup champion, Eddie Steele. First and goal from the one. This is it. Steagle. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Check out our social media pages for more at huddleup underscore MB. For full audio, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For full video, head over to YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Tune in next week for another great episode. See you next time.